Welcome to another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. My name is Michael Yetman, and I'm joined by first-time host Amber Longo. Welcome to the club. Thanks. It's, I'm glad to be here. Amber is a pre-fellow here at MPFI. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so PRE stands for Post-Baccalaureate Research Experience Fellow. It's a mouthful. But basically, it's a program developed for students that have already got their bachelor's um, but would like a little more research experience before they go off to go get their PhD. So what have you been working on in your time here? Uh, so my time here has been uh, pretty awesome. I, as you know, work in your lab uh, with Dr. <laughs> Just to be clear, in, in the lab of Dr. Hiroki Taniguchi, yes. not my lab, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yes. I work in the, in the same lab as you. Um, okay. So as you've probably described before, we study the development of a type of interneuron in the cortex called a Chandler cell. So my, my specific project was looking at a type of cell adhesion molecule and how that contributes to chandelier cells finding their targets. That's really cool and also appropriate for today's, uh, today's guest. Could you tell us uh, who we have on today? So uh, today we have uh, Dr. Hisashi Umemori from Harvard Medical School, and his work is all about synaptic development. Yeah, one of the really interesting things that he's discovered in his career is that there are these sort of master regulator genes called synaptic organizers that can control how specific synapses within, even within particular brain regions develop. So in other words, how the axons from one neuron can find the, uh, their specific target and maintain that synaptic connection through the life of the animal. But that's different from cell adhesion molecules, right? Yeah, so these are actually secreted factors that are almost like growth factors that actually kind of organize it instead of just link up the linking up the synapses. But he also focuses not only on the genetic component, but also sort of how activity can re regulate or refine this process. Cool. So let's hear what he has to say. Today we're joined by Dr. Hisashi Mamori, Associate Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School where he studies synaptic connections between neurons and how they're established, refined, and maintained in the central nervous system. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You study the synapse, right? Um, and as many people know, it's the connection between two neurons and how, they, uh, how most information is passed through the, through the nervous system. Uh, why do you uh, think it's important to study synapse development? So synapses are the fundamental component uh, of the brain where neuron and neuron uh, interact with each other and, and, and transmit the information. So that's why synapses in the brain must be formed appropriately. And that's why we need to understand synapse formation. And that's why I think it's very important to understand it. So can you walk us through the sort of stereotypical process by which a synapse is formed? Mm -hmm. So synapses are the contact site between two neurons in the brain. So meaning like uh, each neuron must uh, form a kind of like, uh, arms or neurites uh, to contact each other. So basically one neuron will send a neuro, neurite process called axons 
which will eventually find its target. Uh, uh, that, and that process is called dendrites of another neuron. And when axon uh, finds a dendrite, then they will form synapses. But this process requires like a precise control because uh, the axon needs to connect to the right target. So they need to contact to the specific and appropriate target. And when they uh, form synapses, it needs to be functional, meaning so that axons can transmit the information. So synapse is a kind of functional unit uh, and a critical fundamental unit in the brain. So you mentioned that these axons have to find their targets and that these targets are very specific. So how does this process happen? Is, is it genetically encoded uh, signals? Is it activity? Mm -hmm. so, okay, so there are many factors, of course. Uh, but in principle, at least uh, uh, the very first stages-wise, uh, it's genetically encoded, is what we think. Meaning there are many molecules that are guiding axons to the right target. Uh, so there are many guiding molecules and target-specific molecules where uh, axons are guided to the appropriate target dendrites. And then uh, when they contact, there are molecules to induce synapses. And we still we also think those molecules are genetically encoded, meaning that those molecules are more, those molecules know how to form specific synapses. But then uh, after that, there comes an activity dependent stage, where neural activity can modify such connections. So like, uh, activity can modify synapses in many ways. But uh, during development, uh, one way is that to uh, maintain more active synapses and eliminate uh, less active synapses so that we can have more efficient circuitry. So here, uh, activity plays a critical role. And this, uh, this process is still not clearly understood, but uh, neural activity uh, eventually uh, establish the most efficient circuitry during development. So we know in, in a lot of animals that there are like critical periods, right, mm -hmm. during development, after which learning and other synaptic mechanisms mm -hmm. uh, take, happen differently. You said that um, during development, they'll eventually land on the most efficient way of connecting. Mm -hmm. Is, do you think that's the end of a critical period or um, how do you think that mm -hmm. changes? Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so critical period is when the like, uh, brain is really plastic and like, uh, where like, uh, neural circuits can be modified uh, really easily. Like uh, during your uh, like adolescence, your brain is really more plastic. That's why you can learn like, things much, much easier than adults. And like uh, languages, like, uh, you must learn when you're young. Otherwise, you can't be really native. So that's, that's why like, uh, in any like, uh, uh, exper experiences, like, uh, we do have critical period. And that is when like, uh, stimulations or neural activity can modify uh, synaptic connections uh, really efficiently. And, and that's, that's when like, uh, synapse, synapse, synapses are refined by neural activity. So basically critical, critical period is when uh, synaptic synapses are modified by neural activity. So you're saying that after a critical period, synapses aren't synapse, modified by Yes, so synapses activity? become less plastic. But of course, synapses can be modified in the, in the adults. Uh, like we still can learn in adults, 
and many things like experience or like stress or even drugs can influence our synapses, even in adults, but they are less plastic uh, than during development uh, or during critical periods. So one of the really cool things in your research is that you've discovered some of these genetically encoded molecules that you described that you call synaptic organizers. How do you go about finding synaptic organizers? So what we did was to perform a screen uh, to identify molecules that can induce synapses using cultured neurons. So uh, then, so what we did was basically biochemical biochemic purify active components that can induce synapses in culture, then proved uh, the function of those molecules in vivo uh, by using mouse genetics and so on. Uh, to show that these molecules are indeed critical for synapse formation in the mammalian brain. Yeah, it's really amazing. You do a really great job of showing that um, when you remove these uh, key regulators by knocking them out mm -hmm. using mouse genetics or by overexpressing them, you can modulate this mm -hmm. synaptic structure. And not even, not even, not just that, but these certain synaptic organizers are oftentimes specific to a very, very precise neural connection. So even within the same brain region, one connection will require one synaptic organizer and a slightly different connection in the same area won't. Mm -hmm. So that is indeed a very important question that we still do not have an answer. Because so in our brain, so there are so many neurons, like more than 100 billion neurons, and they have so many, many synapses. But synapses needs to be specific, meaning like a, um, if let's say like a, when, because any connections need to be specific to let's say our function, let's say like a, a neuron, like a, supposed to move up, move my arm is connected to the leg. Of course, something wrong will happen. So that's a specificity we need for our function. And to form uh, such a variety of synapses in a specific manner, uh, we thought there needs to be multiple molecules that are co that needs to cooperate to establish specific connections. And that's what we indeed are showing where we found many, many, many molecules, but they are specific to certain circuits or certain type of synapses or certain stages. And there are multiple molecules that are very specific, but they are cooperating to establish specific synaptic connections in the brain. And that's what we are finding. And still, there are so many questions to address, how specific they need to be, and so on. And still, we are uh, in the beginning because there are so many types of synapses and whether those molecules are relevant to certain circuits that are, are related to specific behavior or not. And those are indeed important questions we need to address. So, for those specific molecules, um, how do you think evolutionarily they might have become so specific? Um, and do they change at all during development, their function, or in different brain areas? Can the same molecule have mm -hmm. similar or very different actions? So in terms of different brain area-wise, still a big question. So um, there may be common molecules. Like when I started uh, looking for a molecule, uh, People thought there might be only one molecule to induce synapses, like meaning like uh, there should be many many molecules to guide axons to the target. But once they reach the target, 
Why do you need more? Just one molecule can induce synapses. But actually, we do need to verify there are specific synapses. And indeed, we do have multiple synaptogenic molecules uh, to establish specific synaptic connections. And we still don't know whether there are common molecules in different areas. And indeed, it seems like that. There are overlap, that one molecule is used in different areas. But uh, there are multiple molecules cooperating. So uh, there are different uh, combination molecules that are probably used in different areas or different regions, different synapses and so on. And that's what we are still trying to understand. Over the course of development, do you think like as the same molecule, its role can change? It's possible. Um, so a molecule used during development can be used to repair synapses in adults. So for example, like a one molecule we study uh, is very abundant during development, but then the expression decreases in the adult. However, when the brain's damaged, that molecules come back. Okay, so meaning like that, that that molecule might be trying to repair the brain when needed. So the same molecule may uh, work during development or after injury to repair the brain. So yeah, that that's that ha that I think we happen. Yeah, we have. That's really interesting. I was wondering if if the converse situation could be true. So could there be problems with these synaptic organizer molecules that? could lead to particular types of synaptopathies or disorders of synapses in particular regions of the brain? So diseases-wise, we don't know, but absolutely. So if you inactivate one synaptic organizer, then that may cause specific synaptic defects in specific regions or specific type of synapses. And that's indeed we are... Uh, finding and and whether that links to specific like a diseases wise it's a little unsure because you know like a neurological diseases are more like syndromes and many like a mutations can cause the same like a phenotype and that's probably involved more circuit uh, depend circuit level changes but uh, synaptic organizers if they're uh, impaired then that may cause synaptic defects and then lead to circuit level changes and that may lead to uh, such neurological diseases, and an outcome may be common uh, by the defects caused by many synaptogenic mo molecules. But uh, I, I think that uh, so each synaptic organizer is specific to certain at certain levels anyway in the brain. So there's these synaptic organizers that can manage the development of different types of synapses in different regions or even different types of synapses in the in the same region. Uh, but an additional component of this is not just sort of the spatial organization of when the axon reaches a dendritic target, mm -hmm. but there are also many different types of synapses mm -hmm. that express different types of neurotransmitters mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. excitatory glutamate or inhibitory GABA. Does your work on synaptic organizers apply to this as well? Yes. Yeah, as you mentioned, there are many types of synapses uh, that use different neurotransmitters. So uh, some of them are uh, glutamatergic, which uh, is used, glutamate is used for excitatory synapses, meaning when a neuron is activating next neuron, then uh, those synapses use glutamate or excitatory synapses are forms there. Uh, 
Um, the other, uh, the opposite is for inhibitory synapses, where one neuron can suppress the activity of the next neuron, where GABA is used as the neurotransmitter. And there are other types, types of synapses called modulatory synapses, where those synapses can modulate excitatory synaptic, synaptic transmission or inhibitory synaptic transmission. And those synapses use uh, neuropeptides such as choline, acetylcholine, or dopamines. So there are many, many types of synapses in the brain. But those synapses need to be formed at the right place in the brain. Like excitatory versus inhibitory-wise, they need to have a good balance. Otherwise, like a, like a, if you have an imbalance in the brain, you have diseases such as epilepsy, for example, in the extreme cases, or depression, or the opposite. For example, that's why the balance between excitatory versus inhibitory is very important. So, that, so that's why they need to be formed at the right place to control the balance. And modulatory synapses must be formed at the right place to moderate specific synapses. And indeed, what we are finding is that there are specific synaptic organizers for each type of synapses, meaning for excitatory, there's one, for inhibitory, there's another, and for modulatory, another different one. So that like, we have multiple synaptic organizers that are specific to each type of synapses. Um, and indeed, again, they are cooperating to form like appropriate synaptic network in the brain. So you have there's multiple types of synapses. Mm -hmm. um, does does one neuron only express one type of synapse, or can they express multiple synapses? So that's actually a very good question because it's still controversial. So in general, uh, there's one like excitatory neurons express uh, uh, glutamate as the transmitter and inhibitory neurons uh, have GABA as a transmitter. But they do, uh, they can release more than that. And, and modulatory synapses-wise, those are most, most, most in neuropeptides, and they could be co-released with glutamate or GABA, meaning one neuron can co-release both glutamate and those peptides, and as well as GABA and those peptides, meaning one neuron can release multiple uh, neurotransmitters. But um, for each type of synapses, um, there needs to be certain regulations, of course, because we need to have a balanced network. And that's why like, uh, so, um, uh, we, we do think that uh, there must be certain regulations uh, there at the synaptic level uh, to form appropriate type of synapses. But still, like, uh, uh, how, how many neurotransmitters can be released from a neuron is a question. So part of this balancing of activity mm -hmm. kind of harkens back to when you were talking about the role of activity mm -hmm. in the shaping of these circuits. So could you talk a little bit more specifically about how activity either in cells mm -hmm. that are sending their axons to a region or the cells that are being contacted by axons, how their activity actually can sculpt the synaptic organization? So activity from both pre- and post-synaptic neurons are necessary uh, to perform the sculpt, sculpting or refinement. So in general, uh, we keep active synapses and eliminate inactive synapses. 
And that's kind of makes sense that with, so that we have more efficient or functional synapses. And for that, we need uh, presynaptic neuronal activity as well as postsynaptic neuronal activity. So meaning if we suppress uh, presynaptic neurons, then those synapses are eliminated because those are inactive. And if we suppress like a postsynaptic, then those synapses are eliminated. And, and meaning like a, both the like presynaptic and postsynaptic activities are necessary uh, to identify the synapses to keep or eliminate. Uh, but how they are cooperating or how the activity influence or determine which synapses to keep and which synapses to eliminate is still a big question that we don't know. One of your recent findings that's really interesting is that when you use tools to suppress activity, say in the presynaptic neurons, you can get this uh, alteration in the refinement of the, of the synapses of their postsynaptic targets. But this only happens when you turn off a subset of the neurons. If you turn off all of them, then this effect goes away. Can you talk a little bit more about the competition that needs to happen between these cells? Uh -huh. so, so the experiment uh, we performed was to suppress only a subset of neurons uh, or suppress all the neurons. And when we suppress the activity of a subset, subset of neurons, then um, those neurons retracted their uh, connections. But when we suppress the activity of all neurons, uh, those connections are maintained. So meaning for the inactive connections to be eliminated, you need active connections to be present. And this kind of makes sense because like, uh, when you retract inactive connections, you want to keep active ones. If they're all inactive, the brain uh, can't really tell uh, which to retract uh, so that uh, so they decide to keep them all. And maybe brain's more hopeful that eventually those inactive connections may become active again in the future. Uh, rather than to eliminate them all, then that's the end. But anyways, but these experiments suggest that there needs to be active connections uh, for the inactive connections to be eliminated, suggesting that active connections are sending like a kick-out signal to inactive connections to eliminate. And those are the signals we are still looking for. And those are uh, indeed a big question in my lab. Earlier, we, we talked a little bit about critical periods, and we also mentioned uh, synaptopathies or the diseases that happen when uh, something goes wrong in forming these synapses. So in the future, we might get closer to uh, personalized medicine where we can figure out um, a specific person's um, disease might come from a specific synaptopathy or something like that. Like how, how would you approach treating someone when you knew that this was the defect? So from our work, and so we basically study how synapses develop, okay? how synapses form by identifying molecules that can induce synapses. What we hope is that uh, in the adults, okay, if you see synaptic defects in diseases, by applying molecules that we identify, we can kind of restart synaptic development in the adults so that we can treat such diseases. 
meaning we are not specifically talking about a particular mutation in that gene, but that is a little hard to treat. But more generally, if there are defects in synapses in the adult, we hope to apply our synaptogenic molecules to repair their synapses more generally uh, or re-establish appropriate connections in the adult. And that's the hope uh, we have. And that's why we study synapse formation and eventually to apply treatment of diseases in the adults. Are there certain developmental diseases that you might be able to uh, treat during development? So theoretically, yes, but practically this is hard because normally you can't really treat patients before we see symptoms, right? So if so, unless they got that person will develop the disease 100% for sure, you can try to prevent it. But practically, we can't until we see symptoms. That's why we are hoping to apply our molecules for rather uh, repairing the synapses or at least stop the progression of diseases. Like uh, when we start to see some symptoms, maybe we can like, uh, manipulate those genes to stop the progression or maybe try to recover it. And that's the, that's the hope here. Uh, and we are trying. So that was really interesting. Thanks again for talking to us. My pleasure. So that's our show. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to Dr. Hisashi Umamori for talking with us. Uh, thanks to the producers and the Office of Scientific Communications at MPFI. Our sound engineer for this episode was Joe Schumacher. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at at NeuroPodcast. Tune in next time for another episode of Neurotransmission. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>